We are in, if there's anybody new tonight, this is the Doctrine of God class, and um, we are going to be looking in scriptures, asking the question uh, of God. We ask him, who are you, God? And we uh, let him tell us from the Bible. That's how we're going to do it this semester. And then we draw out some things about that. Uh, you'll see on your handout that we're going to be in Exodus 3 again tonight. And if you were in the service this morning, you know that there's one thing I wanted to clarify uh, this after, uh, right before we begin. So we'll spend a few minutes in that clarification, and uh, then we will go from there. And we'll dive into Exodus 3 once again. So uh, let's go ahead and pray. We'll ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll jump into the, the material. Father, we just come before you uh, with humble hearts asking that you will help us now and guide us into truth by your Spirit. I thank you for each person here tonight and their desire to know you uh, more and to learn about you and to grow in their relationship with you. And so I pray that this uh, lesson would be used by you in part to do just that for each one here. I pray as always for the gifting of the Spirit to communicate in an effective way uh, the truths that we will look at tonight from your word. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so when we're talking about the doctrine of God, this is a theology type of class. We are, um, we're learning theology and the word theology, of course, means something akin to the study of God, okay? And um, I like to put it this way. Our theology is the conclusions we draw about God, okay? So when we draw conclusions about God, who He is, specifically, His being, His attributes, those kinds of things. We're drawing conclusions about God, who he is, what he's done, what he does do. That's our theology. And it can be either really good if it comes from the word, or it can be really bad. I'm sure we've all had experiences where you were talking to somebody and they've got some ideas or some thoughts about God and those, those thoughts just aren't accurate with what you know is in the Bible that's talked about God. That's because uh, everybody has a theology, but it's just not always true or right. And our, our theology can be so uh, diluted at times and convoluted because we pick up theological ideas from other sources other than the Word of God, okay? And so as God's people... We want to make sure that we are drawing our conclusions accurately from the Bible uh, so that we don't become guilty of violating the, the commandment, as an example, of not making any God in our own image, because that's a lot of the people's gods that, that, that it is in their own image. We need a couple more chairs, or uh, is it just you, Mark? We got somebody else? Maybe we can grab that. Okay. Um, so we, uh, we want to make sure that we're right about who God is. But remember how we talked about last week, we have some goals in our theology, in our theological studies that are important to keep at the forefront of our minds as we are uh, working through this. 
the goal of a theology is not only to be right about God. That's not a goal to just be right uh, or to win an argument or to have a bunch of facts about God. You may have had the pleasure of knowing somebody who knows a lot about God and they know they know a lot about God and they're very obnoxious with that knowledge they have about God or what they think. It was like their goal is to just get you into a debate about who God is and win. I don't know if you've ever had that pleasant experience of somebody like that. We don't have that goal in mind at all. When we want to learn about God, and none of this, by the way, is on the handout. So if you're looking, I'll tell you when we get to the handout, okay? Might be a few minutes before we get to the handout. Um, the, the goal of our knowing about God, I, I would put it in one way as simply as this, to love him. Now, some of you were part of the original class back in September, and we started in um, Deuteronomy chapter 4. might be helpful just to look at this again. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Actually, I'm sorry, it's 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning of verse 4, this is known as the Shema. This is something that a faithful Israelite or Jew will rehearse every day. Okay? The Shema comes from the Hebrew word to hear. That's because if you look in verse 4, what's the first word? Hear, right? Or listen, or pay attention to, or let this sink in, Israel, right? He says, hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So as soon as we start talking about the Lord our God, our, prior, our first responsibility is to love him with our entire being. A love that's going to be manifested from our hearts and our minds and our hearts out into our lives. Okay? So it is a love for God that we are cultivating. And akin to that is uh, the goal of theology and knowledge of God is the worship of God. Which, yes, I would recognize is connected into here. Right? Into the love of your Lord, your God. But I'm separating out a little bit. To, I mean, how many times do you read through the Psalms and what are you commanded to do over and over again? Praise the Lord. And we even talked about the word that we have that describes that, that command of uh, hallelujah, hallel, praise, yah, okay? And uh, praise the Lord. Our, the goal of theology, we would say, is doxology, we know what the doxology is. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's, a, it's an expression with our words of praise to God. And the goal of all theology is that worship of God. That glorying of him and that worship of him and the enjoyment of him. So what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. These things, that enjoyment, that love, that praise of God. And if that's not happening with you, as a result of over time of your Bible reading and your 
worship uh, service experiences and your Bible studies, then it's really time to get to, uh, to address that issue and be honest with God. Say, I don't find myself enjoying you. And it's okay to say that to God because who's the one that can fix that? God can fix that. We get very honest with this. And uh, we don't fake it till we make it. We go to God and we explain to Him, I want to love you. I want to love you more. And ask Him by His Spirit to help us with that, okay? So these are some of the goals of theology, these conclusions we're going to draw about God. Now, I said last week, some of you might not have been here, but we're in Exodus 3, so you can turn there. We're talking about the divine name as revealed to Moses. Let's, let's see if we need to help somebody there outside the door. Can we do that? See if they need. Oh, it's Sarah. Good. We were waiting for you, Sarah. <laughs> All right. Um, this is where God is revealing his name to us. And I talked about a few things from that, okay? So, um, so we're going to go into that for just a second. And I want to clarify something. Remember the underlying, uh, let's see, in verse uh, 15. You see the Lord there. He says, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers. Now remember, that is in all capital letters that clues us in on the fact that the underlying Hebrew word is the divine name for God, the one he's given, I am, okay? You tell them, I am who sent you to you, and then they, they go into it, and now they all of a sudden start translating it, the Lord. Remember why they did that is because the tradition all along, uh, through the Old Testament time and through the scribes, the Jewish scribes, was that they did not want to mispronounce or miswrite the divine name. And so they would replace Yahweh, remember this was the divine name, Yahweh, uh, with, with the, with the uh, name uh, Adonai or the title Adonai. Adonai is also translated in your Old Testament or Bible as Lord, but it's only capital L with lowercase o-r-d. So you, as a reader, know that's the Hebrew word for Lord is Adonai. But when you see all caps, you know, wow, this was the divine name. And you'll see this all through your Old Testament and your Old Testament only. The reason it's the case, when you come in the New Testament, you see Lord, it's always the same underlying Greek word, okay? Kurios. But Old Testament you come across Lord in all capitals, it's Yahweh. The reason that uh, that happens is because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And the New Testament is written in Greek. And the New Testament authors, as they wrote out in Greek, didn't use the divine name of Yahweh with perhaps the exception of the Gospel of John where Jesus claims to be I am which in the Greek is ego, I, me. It's just I am, just like in the Hebrew. I am. With that exception, the rest of the time, even when it's quoting an Old Testament passage that clearly used Yahweh in the Hebrew, it uses the word Lord or the title Lord, kurios. And the reader has to decide 
whether this is referring to the divine name or not. And there are a handful of occasions where that's the case, where I think it's referring to the divine name, like Philippians 2, where we landed last week. Where every knee shall bow, he was given that Jesus at his ascension was given the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and confess that he is Lord. And I think he's referring to the divine name, okay? But looking for that L-O-R-D in all capital letters is only in your Old Testament that was written in Hebrew. Does that make sense? Okay, because I felt like last week there was a couple other things in that, but I felt like maybe I muddied the waters and uh, had a couple questions. I thought, oh boy, I better explain that so that we, we have a more fuller understanding of how that works. And I'm also not wanting us to go through the Bible in the New Testament especially, and every time we see Lord racking our brains, is this a divine name or not, okay? Um, it is uh, a handful of times, and um, it's significant when we see it applied to Jesus, very significant when we see it applied to Jesus. And there are a number of occasions where that's the case. We won't go through all of those, but there are occasions when that was clearly the Old Testament. Yahweh is being applied to Jesus. That's significant, right? Okay, now, that's a little review. If you missed some of that, you can watch it on YouTube if you would like to uh, and kind of see what else we talked about. Now, here's what I want to do. Here we are in Exodus 3, and in the first 12 verses that we didn't do much with last week, didn't even read them. I want to read them and I want to do a little exercise in the beginning where we are going to learn uh, some things about God, some theology about God that I, I'm, I'm saying, I think in your handout I said just God generally, right? Uh, we're, what we can learn about God generally in these first 12 verses, okay? And so let's read those uh, quickly and then we'll uh, go through those. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to uh, Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely, uh, surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. All right, now. Let's think about this for a second and to show you that you can do theology every single day that you read your Bible, and it's not always complicated. 
sometimes theology can be very complicated. Sometimes as I'm reading theology, I have to reread it and read it again and read what he said again then Google what he's saying to see if somebody else can help me and looking on YouTube and everything, just trying to figure it out. Sometimes theology is very complicated. Other times it's very not complicated, very simple. And if we're asking the question, believing that this is God's divine revelation to us about himself, who are you, God? Then what are some things that we see about God in this passage, in just those 12 verses, that I think we can take and say, this is our theology about God. I'm going to give you the first one, okay? God is the God who speaks. He's the God who speaks. He spoke all the way through Genesis. He's communicating now here with Moses. He's speaking in a language that Moses can understand. He is a God who speaks and speaks to his creation. He speaks to people like Moses. God is a God of speech and words and reveals himself in sentences and paragraphs and has discussions and conversations, see? God is a God who speaks. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. We have a God who is a communicating God. I think that's pretty remarkable if we just ponder that and think about it. What other God would the... Hebrews been, um, uh, uh, yeah, the Jews, the Hebrews been familiar with of all of those gods they learned about in the uh, uh, polytheistic culture of the Egyptians. What other god was there that communicated with words to his people? He is a God who speaks. One of the things that God, uh, God will make a big deal about in the prophet Isaiah is that He's chastising even his own people for making idols. And one of the things he says, they cannot talk to you. You are worshiping these idols. They cannot speak. They are wordless. And how pointless is this? God is a God who speaks. You ever heard the um, illustration from some who are wrong? And they'll say, you know, God's like a like an elephant and we're a bunch of blind people and we can go up to that elephant and we can touch a certain part of it and we can kind of describe that part of it. Anybody ever heard this? And you can describe that part of it, but you can't, you don't, you don't know the whole of the element, elephant and you're just, you might grab the tail or, you, or the trunk or something else. And I heard a pastor say once, that, falls, that illustration falls short because the elephant can't talk and doesn't tell us who he is. In this instance, we have a God who will describe to us exactly who he is. He speaks to us and we can see it. Now, it is important, just a little side note here. You will notice throughout your entire Bible that when God speaks, he does so through certain people. And those are the prophets. Moses, interestingly enough, was a prophet. 
And what you're reading right now in the book of Exodus is from Moses, who was a prophet, and God spoke to him directly. But the average Israelite could not claim that God spoke verbally and audibly directly to them. Then it tells us in Hebrews that he spoke through his son. So when Jesus was here, of course, just in his presence, he makes God known as the incarnate word. And then as he speaks to us, it's, the, it's God speaking to us, obviously, through Jesus. And then Jesus appointed uh, other uh, apostles who now we have in the words of God written in the New Testament the way God speaks to us. So the way God speaks to us, friends, is through his word. That's what I'm trying to say. And, uh, but he is still a God who speaks even to this day. This is not a uh, book of just history or a dead book or just a textbook. These are the very words of God, his voice, his speaking to us. You want to hear God? You can hear him every day. You just read the Bible. And when it's read, he's speaking, okay? So, but he is a God who speaks. He communicates. What's another thing that we see here? He not only speaks, what else does he do? He sees, that's, a, that's right. So God sees. He sees what's happening, doesn't he? He sees what's happening in the, in the lives of the Israelites who are his people. He's observant. It doesn't escape his attention. And maybe there were Jews even in Egypt at that time thinking, wow, I thought we were the people of God and Look at how we're being oppressed and look at how we're being mistreated. Does God see what's happening? That might have arisen right in their minds and hearts. Well, clearly he does. He is the God who sees. You know, interesting, uh, in Genesis chapter 16, you have the account of Hagar, uh, who was uh, Sarai's handmaiden, and she uh, gave Uh, her to Abraham to try to conceive a child to go around uh, trusting in God and his promise to provide an heir for them and uh, Abraham really foolishly listened to her and did that and so uh, Hagar uh, gets pregnant and Sarai is mad about that and starts mistreating her you remember in, uh, in 16 she fled Hagar fled And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel also uh, then made promises to her of this child. And uh, if you look down at verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Or, if you have that little footnote at the bottom, you are a God who sees me. This is a God who sees. He sees individuals. He sees people like Hagar who aren't very important to other people. Frankly, Hagar was being treated like a piece of property that was owned and uh, given to Abraham against even what she would maybe want in that way and yet here is the God as she flees here here is the God who sees is the God who sees me right is the God who sees you these are important things to understand they are simple uh, but they are important for us to to understand that what else do we find in Exodus chapter 3 about God generally 
He hears, right? He is the God who hears us. Interestingly, let me just check something here quickly. Ishmael 4. Yeah. What's the, do you know what Ishmael's name means? It is, yeah, something to that effect. Or he is God who hears. The God who hears. So he speaks, he sees, and he hears. And in Exodus 3, what is he hearing? The cries of his people, right? He's hearing their prayers. He's hearing their cries of affliction. He's, he says in uh, verse 7, he knows their sufferings. One thing we'll talk about next week is the compassion of God. As we're going to look at Exodus 34, I think. He's the God who hears and specifically, he hears the cries of his people. Of course, we know God is a God who hears everything there is to hear, right? Because he's everywhere present in all times and all his fullness, and so he hears everything. But the scriptures are clear that there is a uniqueness to the way and an attentiveness to the way he hears his own people, right? He's the God who hears, and then there's one more that I put in here, and there are probably others that you could find, but what's, what's another one? Let's see if you guys got the same one I did. Okay, that's good. He's the God who commands. This is not exactly what I had, but that is true. He's the God who commands. What was the other one? Instructs. Okay, we see that in the text. Anything else? He promises, right? He's the God who promises. What else? Anything? There's one more particular I'm looking for. He cares. Yep, he's with them. He protects. There it is right there. That's the one I'm actually looking for in this particular passage, even though all those other ones are right. He's the God who delivers. He rescues. He saves of his own initiative even. So here his people are being oppressed by the Egyptians. He sees, right? And he hears their cries and he responds with deliverance. He is the God who delivers or the God who saves. How important this becomes for the whole rest of the Bible. Understand, the account of God with Israel and in the Egyptians is not just a story. <laughs> it is really setting up the entire rest of the Bible. It is this big picture of what God does for his people now through Christ. Sends one greater than Moses to deliver out his people. What is to lead his people out into the promised land. What's his name? Jesus, right? When you read about Moses, you read about a type of Christ, one who is pointing to a far greater one to come, who through him, he will come, he will speak to his people. He will be the prophet far greater than Moses. He will deliver his people out of slavery, not to... Egypt, not to the Romans, but to what horrible taskmaster? Sin. This is setting up us to understand the whole rest of the Bible. He's a God who hears and delivers. 
He is a God who saves and rescues, right? Now, one passage. Now, as you turn, turn to Psalm 34, and I want to I bring this up. The, all of these things that we found about God in Exodus chapter 3 are all in the context of trouble. His people are in trouble. And what do they need to know about their God? He needs to know, they need to know that he sees and that he hears and that he responds with deliverance. This is something about our God that we need to know throughout our entire lives because we constantly find ourselves in various times of trouble, right? We're in various times of trouble, and this is where this kind of theology really becomes important to understand. We've got to know about our God who sees and hears and delivers. Psalm 34 is, a, I think, a passage that strikes right at the heart of this, beginning in verse 15. Listen to this, this reminder of who God is. And where did, they get, where did the psalmist get this? He gets this from places like Exodus chapter 3. So he can say with confidence who this God is. He says in verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them broken. Now this is a prophecy about Christ. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What does this kind of knowledge of as simple as it is that a, a child, we could go down into the kids' class right now and talk about Exodus chapter 3 and say, what is God saying he does here? Well, he sees and he hears and he delivers. It's as simple as can be, but how important is this to know this theology when you're walking through trouble? Friends, that's a time when the righteous, us, are in trouble that we need to know this. That's not the time to be wondering who God is at that point. When you're in trouble to know, does he see this? Yes, he's the God who sees. He's the God who sees me. He's the God who sees the situation. You're crying out to God with a broken heart. Does he hear? Does God hear you when you're crying to him? Yes or no? Yes, he hears and he delivers, he helps, he rescues, he saves. He's near the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. It's one of my favorite funeral passages for people that are hurting. There is a uniqueness to how God is present in the lives of his people when they are suffering. He's always with us, but our theology matters in life, doesn't it? If we didn't know this, we just heard about this God generally, and we didn't know the specificness of his, 
his concern for us and his knowledge of us and his help with us, then we would be in trouble. Any thoughts on this or questions? Can you do an exercise like this in your daily devotional time? Do you think it would be profitable to do that? What if you started a day like that? You had one chapter of the Bible, you're just reading, and the biggest question in your mind is, who are you, God? Show me who you are. And you came across this. That would help you into your day, I would think, with that kind of knowledge, trying to help us uh, uh, see things like that. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, so now there are two things here. Look at the handout I gave you. Yeah. That what we learn from this, and so let's, let's just uh, dig out of this a little bit more now, what we learn in those verses in Exodus 3 about God. First of all, God is personal. God is personal, right? <clears throat> Here, I can erase some of these and write on there. He is a personal God. What do I mean by that? Right, okay. He has a desire to have an intimate relationship, but before we get to that part, which is true, because that's kind of the follow-up of where we're headed, as opposed to what? If I say he is personal, immediately we're thinking in context of relationship. But let's not go there yet. If he is... If he can see and he speaks and he communicates, it means he's not an impersonal thing or some kind of force that's out there in the universe. May the force be with you, right? May this impersonal force of power be with you. No. God reveals himself very personally. He's a He's a personal being, okay? And uh, to the extent that he has a name in which he reveals to everyone, of course, the name I am. He's personal. And this is where um, the, uh, he's not entirely mystery. He is personality, has personal characteristics that distinguish him as God. Okay, And we call those characteristics, and this is what we'll spend most of our time in this whole semester looking at, we call the, his personal characteristics of God, we call them his attributes. These things, these attributes that can be attributed to God, that describe who he is. Name an attribute of God. Any attribute. Okay, yeah, he's holy, right? God is holy. I heard merciful. Yeah. He's just. Is that what somebody said? I thought they were calling my name. Okay, so holy, merciful, just. These are attributes, and there are, there are a bunch more. We'll break those up sometimes into the attributes of his greatness, which would be like his holiness and his justice in his sovereignty or his, what sometimes theologians call then as his attributes of goodness. Things that we immediately think of as good, but that can be a little confusing, like his graciousness, his mercy, his love, because why would that be confusing? 
His attributes of his greatness, are they not good? Is his righteousness not good? Is his holiness not good? It's a little confusing, but uh, it's, it's one way to distinguish these attributes. God is personal. And there are things that we can know about him. It means he's knowable, right? And he is a God that has delighted in revealing himself to us. And we talked about last semester the fact that, you know, God is, wow, he's, there is mystery in God. And that he is incomprehensible. Remember that word we looked at last semester? We think about God, it's like, there, I just, you can't fully wrap your mind around God, right? There is, a, there is incomprehensibility there, and yet there is no ability there. He is personal being with attributes that can be known. He sees, he hears, and he speaks. He communicates to us, shows us who he is, and we can know him. And the more we know about him, the more we should, the right heart, right, loves him. Interestingly, like we looked at this morning, remember the, the flesh, those that were in the service, the sinful flesh? You remember what Paul said in Romans 8 about the flesh? It is hostile to God. Some of these same attributes that we will study about God, like his holiness, those in the flesh, that is, they have not been born again. They don't have the spirit of the new heart, okay? They think about God's holiness and they hate it. They, they hate the idea of God's holiness. They hate the idea of God's justice. We, on the other hand, as we learn about those things, we love it. And we love God even more for it. And the more we think about these things and ponder them and meditate on them, oh man, our hearts are just thrilled. That distinguishes us, by the way, or one of the things it does from the, what the Bible calls the natural man, the person who does not comprehend the things of God. Not only that, they're hostile to them. When people hate things about God, like his holiness or his justice, they hate it because they know that means he's a judge. This is why evolution, uh, atheistic evolution, when it popped on the scene in the late 1800s and uh, 20th, early 20th century, it was such good news to people. Wow, this is great news. There is no God. I'm not accountable to anybody. I'm accountable to only myself and I can do what I want. But for us, as we study these attributes, then we, will, uh, we love him for it. And it's important to think about when we study the attributes of God, and uh, this personal being of God, and we study these attributes, um, that, we, uh, that we don't start picking and choosing what attributes about God we like, right? You hear people say this about God. Um, he is, he's loving. He loves, you know. And then, and then if you can get them to say he's just or righteous, it's almost an apology, He's also righteous, but he loves, but he's love. God is love, right? We, they pick and choose what they want about God. We go in and we see what God is, how he has personally revealed himself to us, this personal being. Okay, uh, the next one and uh, maybe the last thing that we'll cover tonight 
is, uh, and I thought I was going to get to the rest of Exodus 3, but maybe I won't, and we don't need to rush here, but God is relational. God is personal and God is relational. This is what John was pointing at earlier. He is personal and he is relational. This is interesting because some might have said in, let's say, Greek mythology that Zeus is a personal being, right? He's not an impersonal force. He's a personal being with a name, okay? But if you know much about Zeus, he wasn't very relational, was he? With God, what we have is a relational being, and you see this all through Exodus 3. When he says in Exodus 3 that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whether we realize it or not, that's speaking to his relational nature. And for God to have relationship with sinful human beings, it required something. Anybody know what it was? The word starts with a C. How does God relate with human beings? What is it? Covenant. In his relational being, God establishes covenant with people. This is why in Exodus chapter 3, by the way, he's, remind, he's telling Moses, now you go tell the people that you know, I am who I am. Tell them the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to them. Why is that so important? Because this God had already established a relationship with these people. This isn't a new relationship as he's showing up on the scene here to Moses and the other Israelites to deliver him out. He's a relational God that established a relationship via covenant with them. Guys, if you're going to be in relationship to God, it can only be through a covenant relationship. What is the covenant relationship that we're in with God? Okay, but what covenant did he inaugurate? The new covenant. This is what we celebrate every week at the Lord's Supper. This cup is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the, relation, uh, for the forgiveness of sins. All of you drink it now, which means that you're in this covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We will find that when we're talking about God being a relational being and establishing relationship with human beings, it's always and only through covenant that one can have a relationship with God. Through the covenant that he makes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, by the way, we participate in, right? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In the covenant that he makes with David, for not just the people of Israel, but I think for the whole world, and in comes the Christ that was promised, the king, right? 
and through the new covenant that, or, uh, that he has uh, established with his own blood. Okay, so God is a relational being. It is true to say he desires personal relationship with individuals. He also has corporate relationship with the church, but it's all via covenant. You can't have relationship. We also often just look at it as uh, we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. True, but we have to understand that's a covenant relationship that is made. And that means that will put God into other things that we'll look at later like he is faithful to his covenant. He doesn't back out on his covenant relationships, those types of things, okay? So God is a relational God. Uh, He has terms like this in Exodus 3, my people. By the way, you are, God would say of us, these are my people, think about that. This relationship I have with them is an eternal relationship and no one can ever change that fact. It's personal. He's relational in nature and we just see it. He initiates this type of relationship, doesn't he? Um, Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God. So no one in and of themselves seeks a relationship with God in that way. They may invent a God of their own making and establish a relationship with that God of their own making, but no one seeks God. It is God who initiates relationship. You need to think of how profound that is. He showed up to Abram. Abram was a pagan minding his own business at enmity against God, worshiping false gods. God shows up to him, establishes this grace-based relationship with, with Abraham, and it continues on to us, okay? He's a God who... Do that. Okay, so that's where we'll end tonight. I think that is enough to look at for one night, but I will open it up now to any questions or thoughts. Yes, sir. What's the definition of covenant as opposed to a contract? Well, there is a sense in which, and the word covenant, by the way, is is somewhat challenging to define and um, in biblical covenants, but it is somewhat of a contract between two parties in which there is an agreement. Uh, in, in biblical covenants, it is more there is an authoritative per party in the contract, that's God, and then us, and the terms of breaking it would require death. So you'll see in Abraham, and the covenant God made with Abraham, you know, he, uh, as a matter of fact, they used to use the phrase in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the phrase is cut a covenant. So when they, God establishes a covenant with Abraham, and then he takes that animal, cuts it in half, and then God himself passed through the middle of it. That was showing that if God were to back out of this covenant with Abraham, it would be a curse upon himself, right? It would be, he would be treated as this animal is the idea. So a covenant is just an agreement between two parties, um, and uh, that in biblical covenants, the terms of breaking that covenant would be would be bad news, something to that effect. Yes. In looking at the personal relationship, I thought of God has a vested interest, had a vested interest in His creation from the get-go. So making these covenants was part of that. He had put this energy into his creation and he's not going to do anything in vain. Yeah. And so the covenants that come along the way, he's going to keep them. Yes. Uh, because of his vested interest to begin with. Yeah, in his in his you know, okay, so let's say if we say 
Genesis 3.15, God promises to send that deliverer, right? And then human beings throughout the next chapters are horrible, and God destroys every living being except for Noah, found grace in God's eyes. And then he establishes that Noahic covenant that he wouldn't do this again. You can see that pattern throughout the, throughout the whole Bible of this idea of covenant, and it is all based on not anybody's merit or uh, you know, you're like, it's not based on because you're so good or whatever it is. It's based on God's commitment to his creation and his name and his glory and his desire to save humanity. I think that's a good, that's a very good point. Yes. Anything else? Jim, did you raise your hand? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there you go. That's really important. And that is a distinction, right? In a contract where I'm going to sign, he's going to, you're going to sign, whatever it is. That's why I've tried to draw out that authoritative nature of God initiating these covenants. And, um, them being binding, essentially. And we could debate some of this under the the Mosaic Covenant and different things, but essentially these covenants of what we might call covenants of grace, working their way out, is all based on God and His Word and not us. Thankfully, in the New Covenant, that's the case. Because we break, honestly, if we sin, we would break terms of the covenant all the time, in a sense. I mean... Um, if, if that's what the old covenant showed is that we don't fulfill the obligations. We need a gracious covenant. What's good. And it shows us God's desire to say, yeah. Mark, did you have something? Somebody. Yeah, but you just said basically about the, the comment on this, about how that from the very beginning it shows how our works don't mean nothing. Right. So, yeah. Yes. All of his initiative all of his desire. Okay, good. Well, next week we will then uh, dive in then to the second half again of Exodus 3. And I, uh, just a few things that we'll bring out about the divine name. What are we supposed to learn from that? And uh, hopefully that'll be a blessing as well. So, okay, let's pray and thank you for coming. Father, we just come before you now. We thank you for who you are. And even as we've just learned, um, we are important to you. And you see us and hear us and save us and establish relationship with us, make yourself known to us and how little we appreciate that, God, if, we, if we're honest at times, how little we can appreciate that. So forgive us for that. And again, even as we started last week, to just pray to you, just say, God, put us in awe of yourself. And um, may we be struck with who you are and uh, even this week as we meditate on these truths about you and others that we'll think about and read about in the Bible. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.